Welcome to Misinformational, hosted by Rebecca Jones and produced by Big Mouth Media. This weekly podcast with Florida COVID whistleblower Rebecca Jones dives into the world of disinformation and how it's hurting America and democracy. Now, here she is, Misinformational. Rebecca Jones, and I am just informational, and I am joined here by the lovely Miss Cindy Banyai. How are you, Cindy? Hi, I am doing great. Living the dream every day in the state of Florida during legislative session. It's not exhausting at all. Yeah, and if you didn't catch our last episode, we took a deep dive into some of the outrageous and unconstitutional bills that have been proposed so far in the Florida legislature. So you should catch up on that. That was a special episode, ran about an hour and a half long, but there was a lot of things to cover. But staying with the Florida theme, we are dissecting a viral disinformation fake story and artificial social media campaign that is near and dear to our state of Florida that until recently I've never heard of. And it is involving the street racing double homicide of Cameron Heron in Tampa, Florida. Yes. So if you haven't heard about this, in 2018, in May of 2018, these two teenagers were street racing on Bay Shore Boulevard in Tampa, which apparently is the second longest continuous sidewalk in America. It is one of the most heavily pedestrian occupied street sides in Florida and traveling at 102 miles per hour, this 18 year old who had his car not even a full month as a high school graduation present, struck and killed a 24-year-old woman and her 21-month-old baby in the stroller. So, yeah, this was a case of street racing. Crash. I wouldn't even say accident. I'm being very cognizant of not saying that word because it was a crash. And that's something that we'll talk about a little later. I was going to say, the bicycle pedestrian community, thank you. Yeah, so what happened was these two were racing side by side, and the driver who was on the right side of the street where the woman went to cross saw her and swerved into the left lane. And Cameron Heron, for some reason, decided to swerve right when he saw that and struck them both. The mother died instantly and the baby died So the other driver was a minor at the time. Cameron Heron was 18, so he was sure an adult. And he pled guilty and was sentenced to six years of prison plus 15 years of probation. So that's a... He didn't hit, kill anybody. His car didn't murder anyone. But since he was involved with the accident, he got six years of prison plus 15 years of probation. And Cameron was not offered a plea deal. And he was found guilty by a jury. He entered an open plea for sentencing, which means that... He basically put it all into the hands in the full discretion of the judge, which he probably regrets. And he was sentenced to 24 years in prison. He was sentenced the minimum sentence for vehicular homicide or manslaughter, I'm sorry, for the mother and the maximum sentence of 15 years for the baby and was sent to serve it consecutively. So one after the other. So, During these three years between when the accident happened and when he was sentenced, Heron was out on bail the whole time. And 
in this time, he became an internet personality and apparently a TikTok superstar. At the time he was sentenced, he had more than 2 million followers on TikTok. There was a huge cult almost obsession with him. Mm -hmm. People saying things like he was too cute to go to jail. It was, it became really obsessive and crazy. And even his mom thinks that it's obsessive and unhealthy. And he deleted everything as soon as he got sentenced to prison. But last year, when he was appealing to have a reduced sentence, because I guess he didn't think that he should have to spend that many years in prison for killing two people, this TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook campaign started with all these new accounts popping up trying to get support, public support, for a reduction in the sentence, which was denied just last December, so just a few months ago. Now, remember, this all happened in 2018. And this whole time, this guy has for almost three years been free. Hmm. And then for the last two years of it, been appealing his sentence. So a couple of researchers started looking into this last year. And University of Arkansas, even one Florida university, found that the groups of people that were saying that his sentence was too hard were largely suspicious accounts that looked like they originated from this kind of Middle Eastern digital marketing firm thing where everybody goes and basically buys Turkish bots. There's a reason why we say Turkish bots and infiltrates public discourse with fake accounts. They almost always follow each other and they all have multiple accounts and they engage regularly with each other to make it seem like there's more of them when it's really one person having five conversations with themselves to seem like they have some kind of public consensus. And another researcher at the University of Arkansas said that there were unusual websites popping up publishing articles about him. They hmm. Some of them were really hastily put together. There was one was in Arabic that was the top Google result. This was a very high profile case, especially in Florida. There's no way that something like that should be the top Google result. So these things are basically paid. It's mm -hmm. And the way that they described it was pretty inexpensive, which for when we're considering that Johnny Depp spent $50 million targeting Amber Heard online through social media with all these fake accounts, that would be expensive. I don't know how inexpensive it is when they say that. I'll have to call and ask the, the researcher, but he says it's relatively inexpensive. So other sites with him share IP addresses with Chinese companies. Some are in Switzerland where there's no regulations on who can buy and operate a website. So a hmm. lot of fake accounts, fake websites, all calling for a reduction in the sentence of this guy. And they're all targeting people who live in the Tampa area. So they're hmm. trying to basically trigger a public response by making people think that everybody around them thinks that this was way too harsh and controlling the conversation and narrative to eventually drum up real support for this guy. When Twitter got word of the fake accounts, they found that 91% of the more than 100,000 accounts that were doing this were fake. All fake accounts, all, you know, bots or trolls. So only 9% were authentic accounts. And those were largely in the Florida area. So that is the plan is that you start all of this, make it seem like there's a real concern. And then you get convinced people who are in the area to follow. And that's what they did. Hmm. Yeah. So several of his supporters, which is very strange, have landed him in solitary confinement because they started sharing the phone numbers of prison guards and harassing them at home. 
And they've been writing letters to him and harass his fiance, I guess, as a trying to save grace. He started dating someone in that three-year period and proposed at the age of 21 to be people like, look, I'm starting over, whatever. It didn't work. Um, and now there's nothing necessarily wrong with PR campaigns. This happens all the time. And if it's relatively harmless, why do we care? But this is full of conspiracy theories, and that's where it popped up on my radar. Yeah. And this case is full of them. I'm going to go over like the 10 worst. And this is a pretty straightforward, there was no question that Cameron Heron was driving the car that struck and killed these two people. They got the data from his car's black box, which I didn't even know cars had, that clocked him at 102 miles per hour when it happened. And that wasn't even like the worst speeding he had done in a three-day period. Three days before, he was doing 162 miles per hour on I-75. Oh. And in that three-day period before the accident, there were six excessive speeding incidents in which he was going between 85 and 162 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. So this was not... He had the nickname Racer because he street raced with his brand new car. Yeah. Wait, I, I just, I, is this like, how does an 18 year old get like a street racing car? I just, that's. His parents bought it for him. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're talking also a little bit about some privilege. Yes. Yeah, some affluenza, definitely. And whatever it is called when people claim that someone's too attractive for jail. I don't know if we've coined a word for that, but we probably should. Because I know, what's her name? Did it? The lady at Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. I was talking to Tyler Schultz, who was the whistleblower in that case. We're good friends. And he was saying how she always said that she would never go to jail because she was too pretty. First of all, she's not that pretty. I'm much prettier than she is. But most people are. I don't think it's weird. I think it's a little strange to say that about yourself. But but yeah, that that's a thing too, is that people believe they're too pretty or too rich to go to jail. So some of these, so somebody's paying for this. Somebody is bankrolling this. And because this isn't really a political thing, it's more targeted towards an individual person. You would naturally think that it's either somebody in his family, a very close friend, or maybe even one of these obsessive stalker people. The Johnny Depp stalkers raised funds to release all of the privileged information that was in the Johnny Depp case, only to find out that it proved everything Amber Heard said was right. <laughs> which is super hilarious. But so they claim that the evidence against him was fabricated. You get a lot of the court conspiracies. They claimed that at one point, some of these tweets, and we'll have all this in the write-up too, said that Herring pled guilty to save his younger brother from street racing charges, even though, or his older brother, because he was in the car with him, even though Heron was convicted by a jury, not pled. They claim that evidence exonerating him was ignored or hidden, but there wasn't any evidence that was sent to the court that was rejected by the judge or withheld by the judge. That's not true. They even claim that he wasn't street racing at the time of the crash, which again was something that was never denied. You know? And they claim that he was too cute for prison. And funny enough, they use these very clearly digitally altered photographs, which are put through like the Instagram pretty filter to support that. They claim that the judge was biased and had an agenda because he sentenced Heron to 24 years, but the other driver was sentenced to six years plus 15 months probation. But the other driver was a minor. He pled guilty and he wasn't the one who struck and killed the two people. Then there was the claim that it was the county's fault mm. <laughs> because the road is so dangerous 
but I read an article and I pulled the data to verify. Crash data in Hillsborough County shows that Bayshore doesn't even make the list of the top 20 most accident or crash prone streets in that county. They blame the victims, which is disgusting, for allegedly crossing illegally, even though police, witnesses, and video evidence showed that she was making a lawful crossing. Some have even gone so far as to start rumors to suggest that she was trying to kill herself and her baby. So these people are vicious, ruthless, disgusting. They falsely claim that the state prosecutors asked for Heron to get the same sentence as the other driver, but that was actually Heron's defense attorney, not the prosecutors. Mm. And as we mentioned earlier, he was given the minimum sentence for killing the mother, and that was nine years for vehicular manslaughter, and the maximum sentence for killing the 21-month-old child, which was 15 years. They really cross a lot of line because they start attacking the victim's husband Hmm. uh, slash dad viciously online and because he got paid $5 million for the accident. I looked into that. It was actually the the killer's mom who fought the insurance company to make sure that the dad slash husband got the full $5 million payout as qualified on their insurance policy, which I thought was his mother seems, oh my God, that poor woman, truly just devastated, doesn't not comfortable with any of this she's done she did an interview saying that the whole online obsession is sick and gross and what happened was horrible and people doing this is disgusting and even though she knew that the insurance should could have had a loophole if it was street racing and not have to pay the full insurance amount she filed it anyways and made sure that it was filed before he was charged with street racing so that the family could get the full five million. Yeah. So the infrastructure that, and that's just some of it. And normally we would say, okay, if it's a conspiracy theory, but it's not hurting anybody, then what do we care? But this one, they very much do attack the victims' families, the victims themselves, and create all of this fake information out there that apparently was quite viral. Fake news sites fawning over him invent stories about his life. They use passive language like tragic accident or unintentional Mm -hmm. killing and make him out to be some kind of saint other than this. The first sentence on one of these sites says Cameron Heron is a big name on the TikTok platform and has won the hearts of millions across the globe. That is the first line to his bio on one of these sites. Mm -hmm. Even have little sections that come out like fun facts about Cameron Heron. And lists lists him as a car enthusiast and says that he's close to his brother, that he's a Christian and that he's a Virgo. And they have tons of family photos and baby photos of him. So, yeah, this is a pretty elaborate, disgusting, fake kind of operation. But they use the same means, methods, and pipelines as any kind of disinformation campaign uses. Amber Heard, although Johnny Depp had a lot more money, so he got to pay the Daily Mail to do stuff like that. Although this guy did show up in the Daily Mail as well. They're pretty much, oh yeah, they're all pay for play. And um, we all know that they publish whatever DeSantis wants whenever he wants it to do PR. That's not surprising either. But we talk about the social media legacy sites like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of stuff. But more and more recently, especially over the last two years, we've seen this kind of artificial injection into things like Quora or Nextdoor or these neighborhood type association forums 
Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of that on there as well. We're all talking about TikTok and especially Twitter, because Twitter is probably the easiest platform to manipulate with fake accounts. But the stuff that I get on Ray's Meadow Digest, which was a neighborhood like association forum I joined in Maryland or next door. And it's really quite insane that the many avenues that people will infiltrate that are maybe not non-traditional, but not the legacy social media in order to influence conversation. It's gross. And then like apps like Nextdoor are supposed to, you're supposed to be verified in that neighborhood. So that's also interesting. And it's also the age population, right? That one's like very boomer kind of centric and friendly because it's, it's a way to talk about your lost dogs or who isn't mowing their lawn or stuff like that. Yes. It's neighborhood gossip is pretty much what it is. I think the idea was it, oh, we're going to create a community where if you need to borrow a ladder, you can just send it. But it's really just neighborhood gossip and trashing people. And uh, we do see some of that on there as well. And now I don't think it's very difficult to fake your address on something. I think they only ask you to take a picture of a piece of mail, which you could forge and print and then have accounts that have very large kind of next door neighborhoods and then target those. Especially if you're doing something like this, where you want to target communities in Tampa so that people will start writing letters to the editor or they'll start calling the local prosecutor's office. That's very direct and specific kind of geographical range. Can I just say one other thing about this case that I know just from my experience? And this may be something that you don't necessarily even know about me, but I got my start in advocacy in Florida as a bicycle and pedestrian safety advocate. This is true. I moved to Florida at the end of 2008 and I had my first child in 2009. I had just moved here from Japan. And so I was enamored with this idea of riding my bicycle around with my daughter and was so very excited about it. And then I get to the reality of living in Florida and not only just Florida, but Southwest Florida, which by the way, has some of the most dangerous streets in the country. And Florida, by the way, overall is the most dangerous place for bicyclists and people, people on bikes and people who are walking. Our roads and infrastructure are notoriously dangerous for that. Okay. So I had spent about 11 years on the steering committee called Bike Walk Lee. And one of the things that we always contended with as people are getting killed while riding bicycles or walking is that there was a lack of political will to prosecute those. And what we had heard over and over from the state attorney's office is that those cases are very difficult to win because when you have a car versus a human, there's actually not a lot of evidence left to to prove, right? We even had cases here by us where it was very clearly like driving under the influence and, and things like that, but they could not make the full case or did not want to make the full case, however you want to look at it, to actually prove something like vehicular manslaughter, homicide, whatever, because it was just so difficult to do so. I think that that is a helpful context for the story that you're talking about, because actually, if you had the case, as you were talking about here, of getting to the point of vehicular manslaughter, if that's the charge, right? And that's what the state attorney did. They actually got a conviction and then a sentence. That essentially means that the evidence had to be so extremely overwhelming that the state attorney was willing to take it on and then actually got a successful conviction. Because these are cases that state attorneys in the state of Florida just do not want to take. 
And it, it probably has to do with the fact that a younger woman and an infant baby in a stroller, and it was on one of the most heavily walked streets in Tampa, and there were a ton of witnesses. There was video evidence. The car's black box, which we mentioned before, clocked him at 102, going down like a 35-mile-per-hour road. And yeah, so the thing is that like when he pled his case for the sentencing he basically said that i have been out for these last three years i've proven that i can be a member of society a normal member of society didn't really deny anything that had happened he can't deny that he's the person that hit that woman he tried to blame the other driver them a little bit but just tried to make it seem look i've been good for three years leave me alone but <laughs> this guy had the audacity to ask the court to give him back his driver's license three days after the accident so that he could drive to college. Three days after being arrested for like vehicular manslaughter and right after the baby died, because the baby didn't die on the scene, died in the hospital later, had the audacity to ask the court to get his driver's license back. That's pretty disgusting. And yeah. some real bullshit. I looked up what the court fines and fees are that he has to pay. And and this is for a guilty conviction in which people died. It's the same amount of money that I have to pay to get my case dismissed. $20,000. <laughs> so, yeah, that's some real bullshit. <sighs> but we've talked a lot in the past about the psychology of how fake information spreads so things that you know oh there's a grain of truth to it we have this one document that we've selectively taken excerpts out of or presented incomplete information about or misrepresented what it says and you know using tactics that make people question authority which are people are prone to do i'm pretty much an anti-government trusting person <laughs> as a representative of that movement i can't critique that too much we do have a tendency to be distrustful of government especially you know, in the last 10 15 20 forever years but would they play on those kinds of tendencies of people to think that oh somebody's being railroaded or oh evidence was ignored or the judge denied it or his sentence was so unfair compared to the person who was street racing who didn't hit and kill people and is still going to prison for six years at 17 years old. It's that kind of psychology is behind that. But this one to me was more interesting as a case study because of the mechanics of how it was distributed. I have learned a lot about Turkish, what they call PR firms. The, yeah, tell um, us about that. <laughs> so there is a whole network dedicated to publishing fake information. So they operate fake news sites. And they literally exist only to post content that they're paid to post from whichever person and whichever disinformation campaign is trying to post them. So they have a lot of stories, but all of them are there to A, create the look and feel of a legitimate news site and to B, boost content on the internet that is favorable or unfavorable, depending on what kind of target you're talking about across the internet. And like the one study said for almost a year and a half, some Arabic website was the number one search result on Google for information about this case, even though it was extensively covered, not just by the Tampa Bay Times and Florida local media, but national media as well. And so it's 
how you basically rig search results, which I know what they're too about. It is the types of venues that they go to for these things. The Daily Mail is one of them. That's probably the most broadly read, but there are a lot of sites like the Oh, something in India. I forget which one it was. It might be like India New Times or something like that. Yeah, I've seen that one pop up. They do the same thing. They'll create entire websites themselves independently for these things. Justice for Cameron. Heron was a trending topic, which is how it popped up on my radar because I follow Chris Boozy and Bot Sentinel, which track disinformation campaigns on the internet. And for some reason, two days ago, this one popped up again. People pretty much tweeting every 21 seconds, exactly, content about how he was innocent. It's the same script over and over again, the same players. And I was interested as to why it popped up two days ago, because it had been kind of downplayed for pretty much since December. So I couldn't find any recent news about it, but I expect there's some kind of appeal or hearing coming up that would necessitate them restarting this kind of disinfo campaign. But uh, yeah, and so the Switzerland websites, which in the United States, you have to register a website to a user. You can create a fake alias and whatever, but there are steps you have to take. There are Mm -hmm. no regulations about who can have a site and what it can do. So if you think of actually truly... 8chan as mainstream, that's pretty much what it is. You don't have to go to the dark web. They don't need a dark web. It all just exists. And uh, some of uh, that are also in Great Britain just because of their libel and slander laws. And uh, yes, like I said, we've discussed the psychology. It's the same playbook every single time. This is more about mechanisms. And I'm thinking we need to start like a list of specific (laughs) Turkish farms that are involved in these things. and. start to track what they publish because then everything that comes up is uh, suspect. But right. yeah, a, a great idea. resource for tracking disinformation campaigns is Bot Sentinel. And uh, you should install that browser extension if you can. And it'll let you see every single Twitter account, what kind of rating it is. So if it's a normal account, it you know typically posts about a variety of things on a normal-ish schedule. If it's disruptive, then that, or I forget what the worst color is, but everything pops up in red. If it's an account that's been attached to an IP address or an organization that produces these types of farms, it will show up just red. And that way, you know, that's probably bullshit. So that's a great extension to have to be able to fight disinformation. So they do have, I think, Safari and Chrome extensions on your browser. So if you install those, you can eat more easily spot which accounts are inauthentic when you're scrolling through comments because the Mm. worst ones will show up in bright red and then, oh, that's not a real person or real account. So I'm not going to put any stock into that. So this is going to be a shorter episode because I thought the mechanics of this were interesting and how something that's apolitical, because it's really not, there's not any kind of political spin on this everybody involved was white it it was street racing in which there is no denial of the facts of the case but yet there's this massive conspiracy cult around this guy that exists only online and um, how can people can employ that for whatever purpose shows the tools and the methods and the psychology behind what they do in an illustration that we don't have to fight over because there's no politics involved yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's really important for people to realize how these things come up and that they are for sale and they can be for sale for multitudes of different 
reasons, right? It's not just political actors that are using them. And that I initially, one of the things that just shocked me was when you said that there was a hundred thousand people that were whatever tweeting about it and 90,000 were bots. I think that the numbers itself are just staggering. Our favorite tyrannical governor uh, DeSantis in April of, I don't remember if it was 21 or 22, purchased 100,000 followers over a period of two days from a Turkish bot farm that were newly created and only followed him, his press secretary, Christina Pusha, and a handful of other people. And so, yeah, you can absolutely buy these things to follow so that it looks like you have more followers than what you do, which was what DeSantis did to promote your content, which is what a lot of influencers do, or to do whatever motivation this particular case has, which I guess is to create the appearance of innocence for this young person who is very clearly guilty of what he was accused of doing. I'm not going to get into the debate as to whether or not 24 years was enough or too much or whatever to me that's not relevant to the fact that this whole thing is surrounded by lies and conspiracy theories and that they are being promoted across social media and that's probably maybe the only issue of debate in this entire thing i was really looking for an ironclad case of nobody's going to fight over this so if we can just focus on the means and the tactics (laughs) then you know we want to worry about politics because Every time we talk about DeSantis, there are going to be people who are going to defend whatever he does, no matter how egregious it is, because it's DeSantis. Or Amber Heard, for some reason, is the same way, even though that now, you know, it's been shown that everything she said about Donnie Trump was true, and he's a monster, and hope he rots in hell whenever he dies of natural causes. And uh, (laughs) be careful about that that thing on there. I don't want to get banned from something else. But uh, yeah, it's disturbing how easy it is to hijack American discourse with maybe I would think probably no more than 20 grand. I started to look at these websites. It looks pretty cheap. I won't know more until I talk to some of these researchers. I've emailed them. Some of the ones who did this work to see, have you guys ever tried to buy them? I might try to buy them and see what the cost is just to be like, Hey, how much would it cost you? What are your packages? What are your disinformation packages for sale? We should do that. That should be our next investigative piece. It's like, I so I went shopping for disinformation packages or propaganda packages. And these were my prices. It's actually a really fun idea. I think we're going to start doing that. Crazy. Yeah, why not? To get an idea of how they might come back. Oh, if you want us to boost your search results, it's five grand. If you want us to do Twitter, it's six. If you want us to do Facebook, it's 10 or something. I'm really interested in that. Yeah. And uh, that sounds fun now. One of the things that I was thinking of too, as you were talking, actually the frankly, the length of the sentence didn't even come into my my mind as far as what I wanted to know. What I wanted to know is what the indication is of who is doing this. Is it him? Is it his family? Is it these followers? Or we just don't know. So with only 9% of these things being authentic, it's hard to see how that would be like just the cult following. But at the same time, real people were calling the the people who worked in the prison and harassing them and doxing them that real that was real stuff people are sending letters so at least that part of it's real so there might be just a couple of obsessive people who are on some kind of forum who plan all this stuff out to raise money to do this it could be the family although i would from everything i read about his mother i would be surprised she seems very remorseful if she was behind it i don't know about the dad or the brother or anybody else, but he did, it might be him. 
That's the other thing. He apparently had a net worth of a million dollars that he mostly got from social media fame when he went into prison. So it could be that he set this up and spent his money on it during the appeal of his sentence. Hmm. I'm sure he wouldn't admit to that, but I know that there are some means of trying to find that out. And I've actually inquired with one of my internet sleuthy type people to figure it out. But yeah, I've, my money would be on him. And just from the types of messaging and the way that he himself spoke about what he felt had happened, he apparently took personally, we have a thing called, I think it's Marcy's Law, where the families of victims have a legal right to testify in any sentencing or court appearance. It might not be Marcy's, I think it is, but I'm not sure. But we do have that law in the state. And apparently this Cameron Heron took it personally that the husband testified and the husband of the woman he murdered and the father of the baby he killed and attacked him for yeah. his testimony, for being so angry and self-righteous and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, he killed his wife and his baby. Yeah, I mean, right. I would be pretty uh, angry too. Yeah. Yeah. Just from the context clues, my, I'd bet 50 bucks is him, but I need to investigate it further. But those are pretty much who the options are because I don't see some random rich person just bankrolling this disinfo campaign for something that you know was not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things but yeah he did raise a lot of money on social media so that could be a big part of it i can see that so be interesting so that's our big disinformation story is actually like you said the case study of how these things can happen just how easy it can be and what the some of the methods are so they're buying uh, you know followers these not just followers but people who will drum up interest in the story with the intention of getting people in a targeted area to create sympathies understanding yeah. call to action around a certain issue yep and they are just like the same way that things that i've dealt with and other people have the level of just vitriol and just disgusting lengths that they will go to accusing the woman of trying to commit suicide because she was crossing legally and a guy was going more than three times the legal speed limit when he hit her that's pretty fucked up that's just sick yeah attacking the husband because his mother the killer's mother fought for them to get the full payout out of probably guilt which they took i mean like that somehow is an indictment against he could have sued them the family would have had every right and would have gotten a massive judgment anyways so getting the insurance money was in their best interest not just to appease their guilt but to avoid something else going after the families is always not okay but even for something like this where you could have made a million different arguments about why this guy should be free. And they made all of them and they have a script and they stick to it and they just recycle it among themselves over and over again until it becomes a hashtag that is trending. And that's, it popped up again two days ago after three months of being dormant. So yeah, that's how it ended up on my radar is it started just trending all of a sudden on the 13th. And so I'm trying to figure out why that is. Mm. And we'll look into who is behind it next week when I come back with the results of my propaganda campaign shopping, which I'm going to start doing today. I'm going to reach out and say, hey, I'm interested in your services and what you can provide. Can you give me like a price booklet on how this works? 
I should just ask Christina Pusha. She knows all of them, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, so it's uh, a discount because of how much she uses those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she probably does have the bolt rate discount. I have no <laughs> idea how much it would cost to buy 100,000 followers, but it is interesting to see who paid for that and how they paid for it. We do know from the Daily Beast that all of these really hardcore pro DeSantis people, like a lot of my stalkers, are paid. They're paid with Bitcoin, which is, I'm sorry, just too appropriate for this kind of a thing. But yeah, I'm going to look into that more. Oh, and I guess I should mention, since this is our first podcast since it happened, that on Monday, March 13th, three years exactly from when the governor's office decided that they needed a COVID-19 dashboard, and I launched it. We have filed our lawsuit against the state of Florida Department of Health and several people in their personal and professional capacity for a wrongful termination in violation of the whistleblower statutes and for First Amendment violations in circuit court in Leon County, Florida. Nice. So we had to wait until the Florida Commission on Human Relations finished their investigation, which they did last September, which stated that my complaint was for something that was a violation of law that resulted in a threat to public health, safety, and welfare. And we had six months after that release to file it, which we did on the day that was the last days because we wanted to make it perfect and make sure many eyes were on it. You can get the full complaint on my website, misinformational.com, or on my Substack. And we're finally going to get to go to court. That's good. Over That's everything good. that was done to me and retaliation is going to be a big part of it. And yeah. these social media campaigns will absolutely be part of it as well. The fact that the governor <laughs> hired as a state employee spokesperson, someone who spent three months running a disinformation campaign exclusively against who I had to take a restraining order out against, which is just insane. And she was criminally charged with violating said restraining order, and then got our job with the Santas. Wow. Yeah, we'll have a lot to say about retaliation. But uh, so yeah. it has been filed. Finally, after all this time, three years to the day that the dashboard launched, which I'm starting to notice that these things in my life happen on anniversaries. It was two years to the day after the raid, the state agreed that they were going to dismiss the charges. And uh, it was a year after I was fired when the Miami Herald piece about my whistleblower status came out. So yeah, it's, I'm going to start avoiding anniversaries like the plague and <laughs> holidays because they seem to have recurrences of things. But yeah, it's been a, I'm sure most people who are following me know, an incredibly difficult few years. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the day that this doesn't define my life or my existence anymore. Yeah. I want to say something about that too. And we've talked before about how difficult it is online as somebody, you as a whistleblower, as somebody who's stepped up and challenged extremely powerful people with their, by their behavior and what they were doing. Right. And it pretty easy and frankly understandable if you had just said, oh, okay, that sucks and turned around and went away. But standing up and fighting and becoming that whistleblower is a challenge. And I want people to recognize that this is not something that people do because it seems like a fun idea. Like these are challenging 
things to do and if yeah, the retaliation that Rebecca has faced is anything that tells you how difficult it is, I, that these are not people who are just out for inform- want attention for themselves and things like that. It's really a challenging situation. And then that goes for anybody who challenges people in power right? That these are, the systems are set up to keep those people in power protected. And when you start to push back against that, the backlash against you as an individual, the pain that your family goes through is immense. And I want to say this too, because I'm definitely coming from this on the outside. I met Rebecca afterwards. We became advocates for free speech and media through this project of misinformation, all the podcasts and big mouth media. But I had been somebody who studied governance in this kind of thing around the world. And so I know exactly what's happening and, and can help to see through the disinformation campaigns that have been targeted at her. So I just want to reiterate that for our listeners and for people who are questioning her because it's easy. Here's the thing. It's easy to believe the disinformation folks because they make it easy for you. They make it believable. They repeat it over and over again. And our lizard brains love that. They absolutely love that. And it's much harder to be the real person who's under attack. So I just want to take that moment to clarify and also just to say on behalf of people in Florida, families who have suffered during COVID to thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for standing up. Thank you for fighting against Ron DeSantis. You at this point are probably one of the only lines of defense that is not explicitly political against the fascism of Ron DeSantis. And this is the truth. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic about this, right? This kind of court case, as far as I know, is the only type of whistleblower complaint at this high level against the higher level people in this uh, Republican establishment, this Republican stronghold here in the state of Florida. Literally everybody else just capitulates or leaves or are too intimidated to do anything. And that is the threat that anybody has is against here in the state of Florida if they stand up. I just want to highlight that to thank Rebecca for the sacrifices that she's made and to know that there are people who are going to be appreciative now and in the future for the efforts that you're putting forth on this. I always get uncomfortable when people say stuff like that. So I'm just going to say thank you. Yeah, it, it is weird because I get uncomfortable when people say that I was brave for coming forward because once upon a time, I didn't want any of this. When the first article came out, I actually emailed the reporter who wrote it, who I had never spoken to, and begged him to take it down. And he didn't. We're now friends. So it worked out. I also realized from his perspective that he was a journalist with a breaking exclusive story about something that concerned the general public. He had already spoken to researchers across the state who were angry that I was fired. So he did his job. I just was the bystander in it. And I was planning on filing my complaint anonymously when DeSantis went on live television in front of the vice president and attacked me by name and defamed me, which I also found out through all of these legal processes that public officials are exempt entirely. They are immune 
from defamation suits, which is hilarious considering the Florida legislature right now is trying to make it easier to sue the press for defamation while they sit there with complete immunity for whatever they say about reporters. So yeah, it's... The law can be very disappointing. The processes can be frustrating. But even within that context, nothing about this has gone the way that it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. My complaint should have taken 90 days to investigate according mm-hmm. to state policy, and it took over two years. And there were a lot of fake articles about investigations that were, had nothing to do with me, but somehow tied to me because I guess everything to deal with COVID now is put on my shoulders, even though. I haven't been in charge of the data since May of 2020, but somehow it's all my fault. But it's it's something that will certainly be a time of my life that changed everything. But I don't want to be stuck here living in this forever. And I knew when this first started that it was going to be take potentially years to do a lawsuit, but we couldn't even file until last September. So that's not normal. And Mm -hmm. nothing about this has been normal. And I really would like to go back to being just normal. But I don't know if you can unring that bell, even if you weren't the one who rang it in the first place. But I only really made it through this whole thing because of public support. And it was people in Florida, mostly Florida, but also across the country, who helped me pay for my criminal defense, which resulted in the case getting dismissed for a giant fine that I still have to pay, which is apparently equal to the fine that you have to pay if you kill two people while street racing, which is not at all horrible and extortion, and paid for me to get out of the state when I needed to, paid to help me pay my bills, and to run my data tracking website, not just for Florida afterwards, but for the whole country for schools. And I only ever made it through because of that. And so when they hired Christina Pushaw, they knew that is what they had to go after. They have a 30-page playbook on how exactly to do it that was leaked to me last December or November, one or the other. Mm. And it's relentless. But at the same time, I knew then, and it's less important now to me, but I knew then that I was fighting for something that needed to be fought for. And whatever the cost of that was, I was willing to bear it. I'm a little worn down now, <laughs> but we did file Monday and yeah, we, did. we are not letting them just pretend that this never happened or right. to try to rewrite history in the state. So I'm not done swinging yet. Eventually I'm going to land a punch. Yeah, I, I think day. you've landed quite a few. That's all right. I did. I bruised the king, and he he didn't. He took that a little personally. But uh, yeah, it's. I'll be happy when all of this is done, as long as justice is done, and all that I can really ask to be treated fairly. So we'll follow. We'll be following along. It's definitely not going to be a tomorrow thing because it's going to. They're going to drag it out as well, I'm sure. But hopefully that we can find some justice in the courts and faith in our system that it will continue to keep swinging for us, Rebecca. I will. All right. And we will come back to you guys next week with hopefully some results from my propaganda shopping. And if it takes them longer because they're in Turkey, then I'll let you know and we'll cover something else. But I am really interested to see what pricing packages that they have available for these things. And as a high profile figure, they'll probably think I'm for real. So we could probably get some actual, oh, this is exactly what our plan of attack was. That would be perfect if we had like the actual like 
mechanics playbook of this is exactly what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. But we'll see. fingers crossed, guys, we're going to try. <laughs> we're going to infiltrate a, the bots. That'll be a fun experiment. Good. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for leading us through this very fascinating case study and just for being misinformational herself. Appreciate that. Definitely follow along with us here at Big Mouth Media across social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Check us out at BigMouthMediaFL.com. We have some new pricing plans here to keep us as independent media going. You can get the everything plan for $19.99 a month or one ninety nine a year to keep us going. You could subscribe to Misinformational itself for that is $4.99 a month, I believe, is what the subscription plan is, or $49.99 a year. So those are some good opportunities for you to support us and support our work. And we've talked about it before. The independent media is under attack here. In Florida, but we're probably going to have to start yet another legal fund at some point here. If half this for stuff. our $25 a day fee for not registering our blog with the state of Florida. Right. If that gets through, but just know that we're here to help to provide the information for you and follow along. And we'll see you next time here on Misinformational. Bye guys. Have a good Bye. week. Thanks for joining Misinformational with Rebecca Jones brought to you by Big Mouth Media. Stay connected by visiting misinformational.com and check out all the great shows and articles on bigmouthmediafl.com. You can also join the conversation with us on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that's Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to Misinformational wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.